What an amazing truth. Isn't it awesome that God has, is filled with unfailing love? That He doesn't always accuse us? He doesn't remain angry forever? I find that at least uh, a little bit uh, nice. Especially, I, I sometimes I'm punk to God. And the fact that He doesn't hold a grudge against me forever is, is a great thing. So, uh, awesome. Well, today we're going to finish our... Finish. We're going to con- continue our Surviving Life series, and um, this is a series that we're going through uh, different storms of life that hit us, and how does the Bible say that we can survive them? But how we do that is not just looking at the whole text of Scripture, but but also looking at particular individuals in Scripture that have gone through those storms, and look at the example they set for us, and what we can learn from them, and how we can overcome these difficult things in life. Now, of course. Thus far, uh, we have uh, talked about disaster, and, and everyone here understands that. We've gone through. We talked about financial difficulties last week, and uh, today we're going to talk about divorce. <laughs> Dramatic, huh? I tell you what, of all these, these ones, I was terrified to preach this. And the reason why I was terrified to preach this is I'm part of a, a, a senior pastor's coaching network that we get together and I've got these pastors that are in a, a group with me and they're from different denominations, different sized churches, and some have been there a long time and some are like me fairly new. And uh, when I said I was going to preach on divorce, this is what they, they, they did that. <laughs> I'm not kidding. They were like, what? They said, no, no, no. You talk about divorce in a small group. Right? They said, don't preach on it. We've, some of the guys that have been there for a long time, they said, well, I've preached on divorce. It always ends up ugly because people have a lot of skin in the game. Right? There's, there's a lot of pain out there associated with this, and it's a very complicated topic. It's very, very complex. And to, do, to talk about it in 20 minutes is impossible. I'm not going to talk about all of divorce. But here's the deal. Divorce touches all of us. Right? In fact, don't just take my word for it. If, if you have been divorced or part of a divorced family, like a child divorced or part of a divorced family, or know someone closely who's part of a divorced family, raise your hand. Now look at that. How is it that the church can't preach on this? Now we need to stop letting culture dictate, because I tell you what, divorce is, is painful. And God's word talks about this. Now today, we're not going to talk about why people should get divorced or what justifies divorce in Scripture. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about what divorce is. We're going to talk about it from the angle of this. Divorce happens. It happens. So what now? What is the church supposed to do? How do we respond once divorce hits? And so that's what we're going to be doing. And uh, the first thing we're going to talk about is we're looking at two different individuals in Scripture or two different couples, basically, that have gone through divorce and the different ways that they've done it. And, And the first one would be Abraham and Hagar. And the second one is God and Israel. And you'll notice that this is divorce done two very different ways with two very different results. Right? And, and of course, Abraham and Hagar, they had an, an, a very nasty divorce that is nasty still today. Right? And God and Israel had a much different kind of divorce. And it was painful and ugly. And yet, there is reconciliation today. In fact, you don't see the Samaritans going out and, you know, like going, go get the church, right? It doesn't happen. There is reconciliation. So, so divorce done two different ways, and we're going to look at how each of them did it and then see what we can learn from it. So here we go. Let's, first, let's talk about Abraham, okay? little story about Abraham. Abraham was promised by God. He, he was a faithful man, wonderful guy. I know I... I I, I dog on him sometimes. It's only because he's awesome, right? Abraham really was an amazing man. 
Um, God chose him. He moved out of the country without even having a Bible or anything. He like moved him from his hometown to the middle of nowhere, trusting God that God was going to keep his promises. One of those promises God gave him was that, hey, Abraham, I want to make a nation out of you. Right? And they're going to be my people. And I'm going to bless the world for you. And Abraham believed him, despite the fact that he was old and didn't have a kid. Well, he kept getting older. That's what happens through time. Like, none of us get younger. Sorry, but that's just the way it works. And he got older and older and older. And, and as he got older and his wife got older and older, they got past the, the years where you would normally have children. And they were like, well, we trust that God will keep his promise, but maybe he's not going to keep his promise the way that we think that he should keep his promise. Or we thought that he would. And so Sarah, Abraham's wife, said, you know what? I have this servant who you can have a kid with. Now, I'm just guessing that Hagar wasn't the most attractive servant. Because if you're thinking, like, if the wife probably wouldn't have picked her nicest looking guy. I'm just, just, just guessing. <laughs> I'm just guessing. Nonetheless, Abraham, Sarah, Abraham and Hagar get together. They have a baby, right? They have Ishmael. And, and for over a decade, that's just the way it works. Now, Hagar, at this point, she's smart. She recognizes, I've got the oldest son. So even if God does give a child to Abraham and Sarah, my kid's still the oldest. Guess who's probably going to have a big share of this vast wealth that Abraham had? He was a rich dude. He had his own army. That's wealthy. And, and so she started becoming a little uppity with Sarah and created kind of problems in the household. Well, later on, guess what? God kept his promise to Sarah. and She was old. And she had this baby. And, and this happens. Now, get this. All of this happens starting in Genesis 16. Isaac is born in Genesis chapter 21. Genesis 21, right at the very beginning of that chapter. And by verse 12, by verse 12, Hagar is being kicked out. Do you see how quick that took place? That was fast. It just is like, what happened was, is, is, uh, in verse 8, Abraham, or Sarah tells Abraham, get rid of Hagar. I don't want him. I don't want her around anymore. I don't want her son around here anymore. Because I want my kid to have the inheritance. And I don't, we don't need her. And Abraham was, was troubled by this because he had this, this preteen son that was there that he loved and Hagar, which had a relationship with. And he meets with God and God says, it's okay, which blows my mind because of all of how you're supposed to have divorces in the Bible. This is not normally how you, you know, are, are, are normally it's okay to have a divorce. Like, well, she's just not convenient, so it's okay to get, to get rid of her. But God says, it's okay. Uh, it's okay to divorce her. And so Abraham does. And this is how he divorces her. Okay, God didn't say how to divorce her. He just said it was okay to split ways. Abraham gives her a sack lunch and a bottle of water and sticks her and her kid out into the desert to die. That is the lousiest divorce of all time. Well, maybe not. But, I mean, it was still really bad. It was a really bad divorce. I mean, she doesn't give her anything, sticks him out there, says, you're gone. And then, you know, Hagar goes and she sets her son, you know, under a branch or a little tree so she doesn't watch him die. And she sits there and he cries. And of course, God is merciful and good, even when we are not. And God takes care of them. And they end up getting cities and, and, and becoming very, very powerful later on. But never in the rest of the story do you ever hear Abraham going and meeting with his son and saying, you know what? That was, that was kind of stinkerish of me to do that to you. I'm sorry. Never once. There was, there was never reconciliation. And there hasn't been reconciliation till today. Now, God's a little different. He has this beautiful love story. It's not like Hagar where it was just out of convenience they get married, they have a kid, right? 
God chooses Israel. Right? He, he seeks her out and he chooses her. And, and in the year uh, 2082, God makes a covenant with Abraham and says, I'm going to choose you. You're going to be, you're going to be my people. Right? That's kind of like the betrothal. That's like you're getting down on a knee and say, you know, will you be mine? They're not married yet, but he goes down and he says, and Abraham says, yes. By faith, yes. And they have this, this relationship, this, this betrothal that lasts like 600 years. That's a long, good time to get to know one another. And during that time, the Israelites, they had some ups and some downs, but they got to learn that God was there and trusted them. But then eventually, there was the wedding day. And that happened when Israel crossed the Red Sea, went to Mount Sinai, and got the law. And God said, you're going to be my people. These are the laws. Will you obey them? And if you do them, I'm going to give you these blessings. And the people said, yes, we will. And God said, I will be your God then. All right? We are now joined together. And God then took his new bride to their new house. With the beautiful promised land that he, that he told them about. And the bride got to the new house to set it up and realized that they were, there was ugly, stinky people inside that scared her. And she said, I don't want that. And so God said, all right, well, we're just going to live in the desert for a while. So that's what they did, and they lived in the desert for 40 years. And then finally took her back, and, and guess what? The promised land didn't look so bad anymore. Right? And then they move into their home, and then they have this honeymoon period where Joshua comes in and takes over the land. It was a beautiful time. It lasts about 15 years. As they, they clear out the home, uh, the, their new home and they set up shop. And you remember that if you've ever been married, like that first beginning, that honeymoon period, how fun and exciting that was. That was that time for Israel and God. It was beautiful and wonderful. But Joshua died, and then the trouble began. And that's when, remember last week's message, you talked about the period of the Judges. Well, this is what happened is the people of Israel, they had this time with God, and all of a sudden, they started having affairs with the foreign gods that lived around them. It's like they had the neighbors, husbands, and that's who they were going after. And God was hurt by this, and he would call them on the carpet, and Israel would eventually would repent and then come back and say, okay, I'm sorry, that was wrong, and then they would go and do it again and back and forth. And it's kind of a rocky marriage. And it lasted for, for quite some time, about 466 years. In the, year, in the middle of this, in the year 1050, uh, you have uh, the people not just rejecting God as their God, but also as their king, as, as the leader of their home. And they say, we want a human king. Right? I talk about a dagger in the heart to their heavenly husband. <laughs> but God says it's fine. You know what? If this is what you really, really want, then we'll give you that. And so they have the first king is set up. Well, guess what? Human kings aren't all that great. And uh, it only took, you know, what, three <laughs> successions. You had the first king, Saul. He didn't do great. Uh, David comes. He did much better. Uh, that he has Solomon. His son comes there. Solomon builds the empire, the, the, the country of, of Israel, not really to an empire, but grew up big. It was a golden age. They were very wealthy. Things were going well. He ends up dying. He has this, this son, Rehoboam, who was a moron, you know. And it's hard to go from brilliant to moron as far as you're following leadership. And that caused problems. And so the country divided. Right? The, the southern ten kingdoms stuck with Rehoboam. The top ten went with this guy named Jeroboam. And they had this new kingdom called Israel in the northern part of the country. They got to keep the cool name. southern part kept the name Judah. So now you have this country up there that God's still married to named Israel. And you know what the very first thing Jeroboam does when he goes to Israel? Sets it up in Samaria. He builds a golden calf. Kid you not. Kid you not. A golden calf. Like, duh. She has 
He has the adulterous party come move into the country. That's what he does to God. And does God divorce Israel then? No. You know, it, 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 was, it took another 202 years of God going to Israel time and time again, sending prophets, going after them, saying, listen, turn, this is not right. This is, he's trying to fix the relationship. He does everything he can for 202 years. But it became evident that the people of Israel, their hearts were unrepentantly adulterous. They weren't going to turn. And so right at the very end of that, God sends one last prophet, and, and he sends him there, his name is Hosea, as one last time to get them to turn. And if you read the book of Hosea, if you've ever met somebody who's going through divorce, it's, and you read the book of Hosea, you're like, wow, these two look really similar. And if you start the book of Hosea, God says to Hosea, listen, you go marry a prostitute because my bride is a prostitute, and you're going to have kids with this prostitute that, that aren't yours because the kids from my kingdom are pretty much illegitimate. They're being born into these false religions, and they're worshiping these, these guys. This is, this is totally sick, and I want you to show the nation what they've done. And, in fact, when, you, when these kids are born, this is what I want you to name. I want you to name your first kid Jezreel because that's where I'm going to abandon you. And the second kid, yeah, I want you to name, this is going to be a daughter, I want you to name her Not Loved. Can you imagine naming your daughter Not Loved? <laughs> he said, because you know what? I'm done with you. I don't love you. You've hurt me so much, I don't love you anymore. And then you're going to have another kid later on, and that kid's born, says, you're not my people. What does that mean to a son when his dad says, you're not mine? But that's exactly what God says. You do this. And, and, and this prophet who was living through the very difficult time that God had with his spouse, <laughs> and he names... He names his kids these things over this period of 40 years. It was a difficult thing. And yet, so that's the very first part of, of, of Hosea. Next chapter, next chapter, it, it, God is saying, you know what, but the place, Jezreel, where I abandon you is a place I'm going to come and I'm, I'm going to protect you again. You know where you said you're not loved? I'm going to love you again. You say it's not my people, I will be, you will be my people again. You see, in the book of Hosea, this, this mess of a God where he's just angry. At one point, he's like, I'm going to strip her naked and I'm going to have her get, you know, just send her out and to get, you know, destroyed by all these other nations. I'm going to let her face what she's done. And then the very next chapter, he's like, but I will love you. I will love you. If you just turn, please turn back. I will love you. I love you. I love you. Isn't it like that when you meet someone who's going through divorce? I mean, their emotions, they're just a mess. God was a mess after so many years of betrayal and hardship. God was broken. And he loved his bride, but she wouldn't love him back. Isaiah ends up writing his book right around the, right around the, the uh, beginning of the 7th century B.C. And in 722, God finally signs the certificate of divorce. And Israel is sent away into captivity by Assyria, never to return. The ten tribes are no longer God's people. I mean, they just disappear. In fact, there's always books like, where did the ten tribes go? We know where part of them went. They became Samaria, kind of half, half Jews. They, they stayed there, and they intermarried with other cultures and things like this, and they had a form of Judaism, but it wasn't really solid. They were kind of the ex-wife, but really much, God divorced them and sent them away in year 722. And you know, it took another 720 years after that point that something amazing happened. 
Jesus came. When Jesus came, he was born, and you know what Jesus did? He made an effort to go to the X. Right? He didn't walk around Samaria like all the rest of the Jews did. Right? He went right up through it. He met with the Samaritan woman. He talked about how God could save them too. In fact, in Acts 1.8, when Jesus came back from the dead and he sends his disciples, he says, guess what? You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You're going to be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. He didn't say, in Jerusalem, Judea, stay out of Samaria. <laughs> Trust me. And to the ends of the earth. It took 722 years, but God grieved this loss, and then he got to a point where there was place and a time for reconciliation. He got there. And because of that, today there is no separation between Samaritans and Christians or Samaritans and the people of Israel. There's not this animosity. God brought reconciliation. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? So here's divorce done two ways. What do we learn from it? Well, uh, <clears throat> there are some things I want to point out. The first thing is this, that uh, God divo- or Abraham divorced Hagar for convenience, right? The reasons why Abraham divorced Hagar was simply this. It wasn't convenient for them. It, it caused all kinds of messy things. It was hard. When they made the, the vows, you know, for better, for worse, for richer, for sickness and health, that better, for worse part, they're like, no, this is really worse. You sticking around with your kids sticking around causes problems for me and my wife. And for some reason, God agreed and said, all right, for convenience, you can get divorced. But it was, it was a divorce of convenience. Hagar did not violate the covenant of fidelity. She wasn't sleeping around with other guys. She didn't do anything wrong in that way. It was simply this. It wasn't convenient for them to stay married. And so that's why they got divorced. God, on the other hand, divorced for covenant. There was a reason that God divorced. See, marriage is not a definition of the state. That's why it's silly when we talk about we're going to redefine marriage. Like we can do that. See, Jesus said, uh, he said, remember when people got married in the beginning? Adam and Eve says God joined Adam and Eve together, and for that reason a man leaves his, fa- his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Because what God has joined together, let no one separate. See, marriage is, is not a declaration of the state. It's a recognition by the state and by the church of what God has done. It's our job to recognize what God has done. And God joins two people, and he joins them, according to find in Scripture, on this one thing. They have a mutual covenant of fidelity. That's how God and Israel join each other. God says, I will be exclusively your God, and you will exclusively be my people. And they said, you will be exclusively our God, and we will be exclusively your people. They made this, this covenant of fidelity. And based upon that covenant of fidelity, God joined them together. Well... Israel violated that covenant of fidelity. They didn't just make a mistake and say, man, we repent. They did that way early on, what God sent the judges. Now, it came to a point where they said, you know what, we're going to violate that covenant of fidelity. We don't care about fidelity. We are not going to be faithful. We're not just going to have you as our God. We're going to have every God we want. And God's like, that's not what marriage is. And that covenant of fidelity was broken, and God broke for covenant. It was a point where he was saying... There isn't a bond here. There is no mutual covenant of fidelity. That's why God divorced Israel. In fact, if you read all the way Isaiah, you read Jeremiah, I mean, God talks about this is why. Now, second thing we want to see is Abraham didn't take responsibility. Right? What does he do? He divorces Hagar, sends her out into the wilderness to die with a sack lunch and a bottle of water. Like, that's going to help. He was a wealthy, wealthy man. 
God said it was okay to divorce her, but he did not say it was okay to just abandon her. He did not take responsibility. He didn't take, make sure that she and his son got to a safe place and were taken care of. That they got a good portion of his wealth because they were part of his family. He made sure he didn't take care of them whatsoever. No responsibility. It's like, see you later. Good luck. God, on the other hand, look what he does. God takes responsibility. All the way through this whole thing, I mean, God is coming to Israel time and time again saying, please, we can reconcile, we can make this right. Right? He sends prophet after prophet after prophet, most of whom get killed. And every time he brings them, they, they reject him, but he still goes after him. He takes responsibility. In fact, he finally brings this one guy, this Hagar, uh, uh, Hagar he brings uh, Hosea to them right near the end. And, and he didn't, he didn't owe Israel anything at this point. You recognize it was like hundreds of years of infidelity to God. And he sends one more prophet. And he says, let me explain very clearly what this will mean if we get divorced. And he tells them very clearly, if we get divorced, if I'm not your God anymore, this is what's going to happen. Other nations are going to come and they're going to take advantage of you. And they're going to take your, you're going to live in poverty. Because you're not going to have my provision anymore. And you're going to be persecuted because you're not going to have my protection anymore. He spells it out very clearly. This is what will happen if you don't come back. And he also says, but if you come back, I'm also going to take responsibility. I will, I will find it in me somehow to forgive you. I will do it. God goes above and beyond. Where Abraham just kind of walked away. Another thing we see here is that Abraham then stopped loving. Didn't he? Just stopped loving her. Sent her into the wilderness, the bottle of water, sack lunch, good luck. You never hear in, in, in there where Abraham is, is sad for his son. You never hear him longing to go and visit his son to reconcile. Nothing. It's like, you're dead to me. Gone. God, on the other hand, doesn't stop loving even when Jesus came back, where does he go? Right through Samaria. When Jesus says, I want my church to grow, where does it grow? Well, Jerusalem, Judea, sure, but also Samaria. And then we'll get to the ends of the earth. God still loved. He still was looking out for their best, even when they weren't. This. Abraham didn't grieve his loss. I looked and looked and looked through those passages and read and did studies on the life of Abraham. You don't find Abraham ever grieving the loss of his son. You don't find him going like, I can't believe what I've done. I miss him. I miss her. I don't think he was in a household that would have allowed much of that, to be honest. But you don't find him grieving. God, on the other hand, man, he grieved the loss. It took him quite some time. It took him like seven centuries. But he grieved it. In fact, he started grieving it before there was divorce. And for anyone who's been divorced, you recognize that a lot of people, before they ever get divorced, have already been grieving the loss because there's already a death and a separation in there. And you read the book of Hosea, God is grieving. I mean, you see all of the steps of grief in that book. He's like, he's like I can't believe you did this. I can't believe it. And he's, like, he's just angry. He's mad. He's like, I'm going to rip you up. And then he's sad. He's like, how could you do this? I miss you. I long. And then he gets to this point of... of of acceptance. And finally, he overcomes it. But God grieves. He, God took time and allowed himself to grieve the loss. The other thing here, 
Abraham and Hagar, Abraham didn't seek forgiveness nor reconciliation. He didn't grieve the loss. He wasn't sad about it. He never went to, to see his son or his wife and say, you know what? Granted, even God said it was okay, but how I did this was not okay. And I didn't treat you well. And I'm sorry. Never. I bet we'd have a lot less problems in the Middle East today if Abraham would have gone on his, his camel, would have gone over to see his son later on in life and his ex-wife and would have said, you know what? I was a real bozo on how I treated you. I'm sorry. What can I do to make this right? Never did it. God, on the other hand, offered both forgiveness and reconciliation. God was not the one in the wrong in this, right? This is the only divorce in history where there is 0% fault on the side of one party. Right? It doesn't happen for humans because we're all, you know, it might be 90-10 some of the times, but we all have some, some uh, if we're in a divorce, we're, you know, at least part of the problem is ours. God had zero. I mean, he was perfect in this. He was the perfect spouse. And what does he do? He takes the initiative. And he goes and says, you know what? You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. I'm going to, I'm going to offer reconciliation. That's an amazing thing. Now, how do we go through divorce then? How can we do this right? Well, there's, a couple, there's five things that I found in the text that can help us as we face divorce in the church, and perhaps even those of us in the church who have been divorced. What do we do? The very first thing is we see this. We're going to want to divorce for covenant, not convenience. If you have a choice, don't divorce for convenience. In fact, in the New Testament, we, Abraham is the only time in Scripture we see convenience actually being authorized by God. It blows my mind theologically how he could do it. But he did because he's God. Recognize this. Regardless of you, if you divorce for covenant or convenience, there will be consequences. Nobody walks through divorce unscathed. Now, this is important for... For those of us maybe that are here that are considering divorce, get this. If you divorce, regardless if there's good reasons or not, it's going to hurt. If you think divorce is going to be a great thing to solve problems and make the pain go away, think again. Did God, who was perfect in his divorce, did he walk away without pain? No. It took him 700 years 700 years to grieve that. It's a painful thing. And it, does, it doesn't mean that it's, it's not an issue of fairness. It's an issue of reality. It just is. You were joined together. Divorce is a ripping apart. There are consequences and there will be. So to weigh those very heavily and to think about them. But, but recognize that if, if you divorce for convenience, the consequences are going to be way worse. If you're in a relationship or have been in a relationship where your spouse was just not faithful, that, that, that covenant of fidelity was violated over and over and over again, and they weren't going to change. In fact, they were straight up, I am not going to change. They built the golden calf right in the middle of your house. The very thing that's pulling away from you, they set up shop there and said, this goes, you go instead of this, Right? They break your heart like that over and over and over again. Well, there's still consequences when you divorce, but it's going to be a lot less than if you walk away just because, you know what, richer or poor, well, I would be better off financially without you. Or sickness and health, guess what? You're a lot more fun when you're healthy and you're not right now, so I'm going to walk away. Or for better or for worse, my life probably will be a lot nicer without you. If you walk away for convenience, there are going to be deeper, longer-term Consequence. It doesn't mean that God's not there. It's not, that most, it's not the unforgivable sin. 
but it does mean that there's going to be consequences that will hit you harder. And that's, that's the reality of it. So the first thing we look at, divorce for covenant, not convenience, if you're considering there. Now, if you've been divorced for convenience, or maybe you were the fault, maybe it's you guys got divorced because of covenant, but you were the one that was not faithful, doesn't mean that God is not there for you. Remember today's memory verse? God doesn't constantly accuse us. He's not angry forever. There is healing, and we can go through it. But we first need to recognize where we're at. The second thing that we need to look at, though, is once the divorce takes place, if you find yourself in a divorce and you know somebody who has helped them with this, take responsibility. Right? Um, and this is what I mean by that. The first thing we need to do is to own your part. No divorce is 100% zero. That was God and Israel. That's the only time in all recorded history that ever took place because guess what? You aren't perfect. And neither, of course, you would agree with this, neither is your ex. Right? You, you both have a part to play in it. Now, maybe 90-10, maybe 70-30, but who cares? The very first thing to do is to look at yourself and say, what did I do? Even if it was 90-10 and I was the 10%, what was my part in this? Because I imagine, I can almost guarantee it from their perspective, they would probably say, if it was 90-10 for you, they were probably thinking it's at least 50-50. But say to yourself, what did I do? This helps you recover yourself, right? What, what was my part in this? Right? How did I have this happen? What was my part? One, because I can learn from it, I can repent from it, and I can grow from it. But I can also seek reconciliation. I can't do that until I first look at what I've done. Own my part. second thing that we want to do by taking responsibility is to do your part. Don't be like Abraham and stick your ex into the wilderness with a bottle of water and kick her out and say, good luck, with a little grin on your face. Done with them. Boom. Just because there's divorce, just because God even authorized Abraham to divorce, did not mean he authorized him to treat her so poorly. They're still a human being. There's still somebody worthy of your respect, somebody you would closely tie to. Take responsibility. Do your part. If it's helping them financially, then that's what it is. If it's when you have kids together and it's it's not bad mouthing your spouse, their parents, <laughs> while in front of them, right? It's honoring, it's caring for, it's forgiving, it's doing your part. You, they, you don't have any right to tell them what to do at this point because you're divorced. They could be horrible to you, but it doesn't give you a license to be horrible back to them. Own your part, but then do your part. Do it righteously. And the third thing here is, I think, the most important because it unlocks the power of those two is accept grace. Realize this. Even if you were the 90%, maybe you're looking at your marriage, maybe you went through a divorce and you look at it and you're like, man, it was me, 90%. Like, I really messed up. Accept grace. God's not constantly accusing you. He's not going to be angry forever. Right? God loves you. Divorce isn't the unforgivable sin. We can reconcile as a church. We can move on. It doesn't mean that God, to use that as, as a grace abuse thing, say, well, I can get divorced willy-nilly. But to recognize if you're there, God loves you. Accept his grace. Because until we accept grace, it's really hard to give grace, isn't it? But if God's forgiven me and restored me and loves me, well, you know what? God already forgave me of my part. Isn't that the coolest thing about the cross? We talk about that great divide. I can do my part because God did his part for me. That's grace. God didn't drop me. Accept the grace of God so we can give the grace of God. Next thing we want to do, survival tip number three, is to keep loving. This is the hardest, the hardest 
of all of these. But let me talk about this. This is important. The first thing we recognize is this is the command of Christ. What are, the, what are the greatest commandments? Love God with everything, right? Love others as much as you love yourself. Okay? Just because you get divorced or you, you go through that doesn't mean that we can, you have a license to just hate that person. Right? The command of Christ, love others as much as you love yourself. This is the second greatest commandment. All of the law kind of <laughs> rests upon this. But beyond this, look at this. Jesus, when he was here, he gave a, a story about a good Samaritan, about his neighbor. He's, and the whole point of that story is who are we supposed to love? And he says, if we can love our ex, we can love anybody. So don't hate them, right? And then Jesus even goes to the point where he says, you know what? Love your enemies. And if you've been divorced, I think you'll probably say at one point or other, that ex was your enemy. And Jesus challenges, that is hard. That is not, not easy. So how do I... Keep loving. It is the command of Christ. We should do it. So how do I do it? Well, we recognize this. I love by not hating. Love conquers hatred. Do you get that? It's powerful. It's a choice. Hatred's going to come just like water flowing down a hill. Right? That's just how it happens. Love is a choice. It's a decision to rise above it. it, it love is a decision. I'm going to choose that person's best above my own. That's what it is. I'm not going to hate them. That's how love sometimes begins with loving your enemy. Is saying, every time I think mean, horrible thoughts against them, I want them to be destroyed and dashed pieces because they drive me nuts. I say to myself, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to choose not to hate them. Now, this is important because who here wants to become the hateful, bitter, vengeful ex? Nobody. Nobody wants to be hateful, bitter, and vengeful, but we've all known somebody who's that way, right? The power to overcome that begins with love. Love conquers hatred. It does. It wins, but it's a hard battle. It, it's a choice. It's a daily choice. So when you choose in your mind, when you're thinking, I want to curse them, in your mind you say, you know what? I want to curse them, and instead I'm going to pray for their benefit. I'm going to do it. After a while, love becomes a feeling, but for long before that, it is simply a choice. Love will conquer hatred, and you won't become that hate-filled person. Another thing we see here is love prohibits vindictiveness. We don't want to be that vengeful person, do we? That person that's out there constantly controlled and owned by a mistake of the past or a pain of the past? We don't want to be that person. The way around this is you've got to get rid of hatred. Hatred leads to vindictiveness. It does. Even if your ex is vindictive to you. Love is choosing. I'm going to offer grace when they're that way. But I'm not going to act out on these things. I'm not going to purposefully make their life miserable. Look what God did. God sent Israel, the northern kingdom, into captivity. Then he, he let go. He didn't send new armies to torture them all the time. He didn't make their life worse. He didn't give them extra plagues. I mean, he could have. God could have been really vindictive. But he didn't. He let her go. And love is what allows us to do that. It allows that separation to be complete. So that way you're not owned by this and that compulsion to hurt. Also, get this. Love counteracts bitterness. You don't want to be bitter. You want to spend the rest of your life. Every time you see your ex walk through the doors at Safeway, be like, oh, and you have this gut, this gnawing thing in your stomach. You're like, oh, man, I hate that. You don't want to be bitter where every time you think of them, you're just like, oh, I, you know, just have that hardness of your heart. Love is how we do that, and love is this choice. I will not hate. I will not hate them. I will pray for them. I will not actively seek to hurt them. Right? 
And you'll be amazed as, as you do those things how God will change your heart because it's, naturally it's wounded and wounded hearts will scar. And if they don't heal properly, they become bitter. But love is that way. It's, it's a long road. And remember, this took God 700 years to get through this. And if you read Hosea, God was definitely hating, vindictive, and bitter whilst he was challenged through this time, right? He wanted Israel to be naked, raped, destroyed, impoverished. I mean, he had some pretty hard words for it because he was grieving. But he didn't act on those, and he chose love instead. And God changed his heart. And there came a time where love conquered all of those. Pretty powerful stuff. Fourth one is to grieve the loss. In our culture, we're told that, it, oh, it's okay to be divorced. It's fine. It's normal. You don't have to, you know, it's an okay thing. And oftentimes, people don't grieve it. One, because they don't want to recognize their part of the divorce. But two, grieving the divorce is kind of like giving, admitting that there was something good in it. But I have never done a wedding where the husband, the, the groom and the bride come together and like, I know I'm going to hate you someday. This is the worst decision I'm ever going to make. You know, Let, we're just doing this to make each other miserable. I've never heard that because I wouldn't do the wedding. Right? You've got to grieve it. Realize that there was something there. Divorce is a breaking. It's a death. You, the two became one flesh. Guess what happens when you rip somebody in half? Both sides die a little bit, don't they? There is a death there. There are dreams and hopes and desires and, and passions that died. It is ugly and painful and hard. So give yourself time to grieve. And recognize, look at Hosea. I mean, just read that book. God didn't make sense while he grieved. He's like, I will kill you. I will love you. I will hate you. I will, I will bring you back all the time. That's the way that it is. God was a mess because grief makes us a mess. If God can give himself time, give yourself that time. Grieve it. Recognize that what I had is now not there anymore. There's grace for you in this. Now, last thing. Oh, so I already talked about those two things. It takes time. Grief has many emotions and stages. Get this. When you grieve, you will feel angry and, and disillusioned and sad. And there are times that then it'll feel weird because you'll be okay with it. And then maybe you'll cycle back through and you'll be mad again. <laughs> Recognize there are different stages. And they don't always have to make sense to you. That's okay. It's the same thing when somebody passes or when something is taken from us in our lives. It's grief. So go through the stages. Don't force yourself to say, I can't feel those things. So it doesn't make sense. No. Give yourself time. Grieve it. And this, that's it. Give yourself time. It took God 700 years. 700 years. Now, granted, he had a much longer difficult marriage. right? It lasted for like 600 years. His difficult marriage did. So he wrote it out a long time. But for you, grief is going to take time. So give yourself that. Don't just jump into the next relationship and think that you're healed. Give yourself time to grieve this loss for, for the scars to heal. And that's okay. Now, fifth thing here. Offer forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, if you're freshly going through divorce or in the midst of it, you would say, no way, Jose, I shall not do that. And I imagine that would have been more like God when he sent them to Assyria. Wasn't thinking warm, fuzzy thoughts towards the Samaritans at that point, right? But there was a time when God allowed himself to grieve it. There was a time for forgiveness and reconciliation. 
First thing God did is he offered grace. He received the grace of God, right? He accepted it himself. Then he was able then to offer it at some point. Now remember, God was the one that was completely innocent in this particular divorce. So rare. Never happens. But what about if you were the one that was wrong and your spouse left you because you really messed up? You were the 90% problem. You know you can still offer grace? Part of that is by going and owning and saying, listen, I, I messed up and I really hurt you and I'm sorry. That is the most graceful thing a person can do. And then those things that they had done, maybe that 10% where they bothered you with, and you could say, you know what, I'm going to forgive that. I'm going to let that go. That's grace. I'm not going to hold them to this anymore. Or if 50, it doesn't really matter the percentage of why are you going to be a person that eventually comes to a place where you say to that person, I release you from this. I forgive. Moving on. You're free. You're not the object of my scorn anymore. (laughs) There's grace. Also this, allow God to redeem what was broken. You know, some of the most powerful ministries to people are are from people who have gone through those very same problems. Scripture even talks about that. It says that God uses the things that we have gone through, the hurts we've gone through, so that we can minister to others who have gone through the same things. If you have gone through divorce, we are in a society right now that if somebody gets married, chances are, the odds are, more in the favor that they're going to go through a divorce at some point. That just breaks my heart. Now, from the front end, I'm doing a lot of premarital counseling to keep that from happening, and I do a lot of support counseling all the way through to keep that from happening. But in our society, the reality is there's a lot of people out there and children out there who are part of divorced families. And a person who has gone through and is healthy in a way has gone through divorce and has healed and has got to the point where they themselves have been able to seek reconciliation, that type of person is is a ray of hope. That person has a ministry. You have authority to bring hope and life into the, to another person's life who's going through a very difficult time, unlike anybody else. Allow God to take what was broken and bring beauty from it. Right? That's what he does. It doesn't mean that the brokenness was beautiful. It means God is beautiful, and he can do it, and he will. So say, you know what? I'm not going to be ashamed of my past. I, I did it. It was, it was bad. I, I repented of it. I received grace from it. God healed me from it. And now I want to use what was broken to bless others and to build his kingdom. Because you have a ministry. So, surviving life, overcoming divorce. Here we go. The first thing that we want to look at. Divorce for covenant, not convenience. Huge. Okay? Don't bring yourselves into a world of pain. Recognize that most divorces are for convenience today. Because we're taught that covenant doesn't matter because we can define marriage however we want. If there is a divorce, look for it for, for a violation of covenant. It's on your power. But if you're already divorced, and regardless of the two, get this, there's still hope and the rest of the things still help you through it. First thing, take responsibility. Just take the responsibility. You step up, even if they're not. Second thing, keep loving. Next, we need to grieve the loss and then offer forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, I'm going to have the, the uh, worship team come up as I bring this portion of message to a close and you say, Aaron, um, that's all great. Maybe you yourself, like Judd, have not been in a divorced family or not divorced yourself. What does the church do in the midst of these things? Right? Well, there's a lot that the church can do in the midst of these things. And, and it really is supporting our fellows, our brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone through a divorce. Who may be going through those difficult times. First thing is to recognize the pain that they have. Right? And, and to understand where they are at. 
to help them to keep loving, that's going to take, uh, that's going to take an encouraging person. That's going to take a church that doesn't reject those who have gone through divorce, but a church that wraps his arms around those who have gone through divorce and says, you know what, we love you. There is grace of God for you today, and we're going to walk with you through the long process until you heal. We're going to help you. We will not abandon you. That's what we can do as the church. And some of that has to do with the, on the back side of this card. So if you look on the back here, there's some next steps. You take that out. First thing, you can say, I'm going to, this week, to help prepare my heart for this is to memorize Psalm 103.8. Now, if you've been through a divorce, a lot of times people come to my office that have been through divorce and they still struggle, even years and decades later, with guilt. Like, man, I messed up. Like, it was the unforgivable sin. You need to understand, memorize this passage. There is grace for you today. God's not constantly accusing you. He's not angry with you forever. He's going to heal you. He's going to redeem this. And he's going to use it for his glory. Because that's the way our God is. Maybe you need to memorize that passage. But you know, for sometimes, on the other side, for those of us who haven't gone through divorce, it's easy to be very judgmental of people who have. And to say, you messed up. And there is problems in our society because this happened. And you know what? And we feel like we've got to stand on the side of righteousness and, and condemn the action. And so doing, oftentimes we condemn the person. But to recognize if God doesn't stay angry forever and doesn't constantly accuse how much less of his body there is a time for redemption and forgiveness and that is the work of the church maybe we need to memorize this passage and to connect with the heart of God so we can act with the character of God how about this maybe read the book of Hosea if you've gone through divorce and you here's a cool thing God understands he really gets it. He knows the pain. He identifies. Read Hosea. You will, you will see yourself in those passages. And that will help you connect with God because it's not like he's sitting from some ivory tower saying, don't get divorced, I hate it, and, and just work through it. No, God himself has experienced it. He did everything he could, and it still fell apart. If you want to hear, see what God was going through, man, his heart is in tune with yours, but he walked through it and he healed Maybe that's something that you could read. But also, if you've never been through divorce, and it blows your mind when people do it. Like, what are they going through? Read Hosea. It'll give you a window into the heart of a person, the pain and the despair and the frustration and the anger. and It's all there. And it'll help us care for people who are going through divorce because we will see it ourselves. What is happening in here? How about this? Pray for your ex. <laughs> that's going to be hard. Or somebody who's struggling with a divorce. If you're not being divorced yourself, but it's choosing to love, let it begin just with your prayer time saying, God, I'm having a really hard time not hating that person. Help me. Or if you know somebody who's going through divorce, pray for them. Say, God, connect with them. Help them through this. Help me know how to love them, right? They've got wounds in their heart that I can't fix, but you can. Are you going to pray for them? Because that's the work of the church. Or maybe you could commit to this. Extend grace and care for someone struggling with divorce. That's the work of the church here. I talked with some folks who had been through divorce, and I asked them about these lists as I went through this. And they said, you know what, with that, probably the biggest thing that you could do is to just be present. Just listen. Obviously, when somebody gets divorced, they lose you know, support at home, and, and finances is oftentimes a lot more difficult. And there are ways that we could help that way. But the biggest thing that we can do Let's put our arm around that person, take them out for coffee, sit there while they don't make sense. And not offer advice, but just offer love. And to say, we're with you in this. I don't have to agree with everything. I don't have to understand everything. But I do know this. God loves you and I love you and I'm with you till the end. 
that will mean the world. Maybe that's what you can do this week. Make that effort. Maybe there's something else that you have on there. God's the Holy Spirit speaking to you, saying, you know what, I need to do this week. Let me know, because I will be praying for you. That's my joy as your pastor. I pray for you. If you have another commitment to make, write that down. Or maybe there's a prayer request that you have. Write it here. Drop it in the offering. And, uh, and uh, we'll be praying for you this week. All right. So we're going to plot these in the offering in just a second, along with our tithes and our gifts. So before we do that, let's just pray for them. Heavenly Father, you are a powerful and a good God. <laughs> you are faithful, unending. And, and it gives me great peace and assurance to know that's the kind of God that we serve and love. And Lord, I thank you for that promise that you don't constantly cue us. You're not angry forever, God, but you give us grace. So Father, I pray for our families that have been marred and touched by divorce. God, that you would bring healing, real healing, but not just healing, but opportunity. Father, for, for ministry and for love and for goodness. For what this world has torn apart and for how we have failed and how the enemy has attacked. God, you will turn all of those things against them. Lord, and that you will build your church in love and grace and in truth. Bind hearts, Father, and heal them in your love and your grace. And Father, as a church, let us be a church that mimics and echoes your heart and your passion and your grace. Let us live for you, Father, and, and let this be a place, a hospital, as you've called us to be for those that are wounded and hurting. Lord, heal our wounds. And help us to heal the wounds of others as they come. We, and Lord, also, we want to thank you for the tithes and the offerings and the gifts that are be brought in. I pray that you would use those, Father, again, to the furtherance of your kingdom, the restoring of your saints, Father, for the salvation of this town. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.